0: Welcome to the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast, episode number 12. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge. Welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. The Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners and tackle them from the perspective of everyday concealed carriers and the perspective of on-duty law enforcement officers to give you both angles of discussion. Today, I'm going to be joined by my old friend, Spencer Keepers, or as Masad Ayub calls him, the master and high priest of appendix carry. Today, we're going to talk about the fundamentals of handgun marksmanship and our interpretation of them. And this applies to both law enforcement and civilians. Some of the marksmanship fundamentals out there are a little dated. I believe, especially when it comes to semi-automatic handguns. And a lot of people focus on stuff that's not important. Spencer just got through training with Mike Seeklander and Rob Latham. And to be honest with you, I really take a lot of what Rob Latham says to heart. A message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Range Tech Bluetooth Shot Timers. Every serious shooter should have a shot timer to measure speed and accuracy on the range. The new Rangetech Bluetooth timer is the most affordable high-tech and most feature-rich timer on the market. $25 less than any competing shot timer. The Rangetech timer connects to your phone via Bluetooth and gives you the accuracy and power of a dedicated shot timer along with the advantages of online storage, auto-scoring, and much, much more. Learn more at rangetechtimer.com. Guys, I've got a rangetech timer, and I've got to tell you, it's a fabulous piece of kit. All right. Without further ado, let's bring in our guest, Spencer. Hey, man. Man, I've been trying my schedule, your schedule. I've been trying to put this together for a minute. And right. uh, today, thank you, Oklahoma Ice Storm. Uh, we're both. True story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're both kind of working from the, from the uh, confines of home here. So you just finished up and I thought this kind of was the inspiration for, for this topic, which was the fundamentals, why most of them aren't really that important. (laughs) I mean, to be honest with you, and I kind of believe my personal belief on that is a lot of that stuff was written when, you know, from the military post-World War II, like we're not, shooting people for a living anymore we're shooting targets and our best people to write right. fundamentals are our target shooters and that has permeated for the last like 70 years and we're finally kind of coming yes. yeah we're kind of coming out of that giving that you just spent a weekend in prior america with two of like the guys that i would say focus on the important stuff Seeklander and latham i thought what better yes What better dude to have on the show when it's fresh in his mind other than, as I mentioned earlier, the master and high priest of appendix (laughs) carry.
1: True story. I don't know. Like, I don't know if I'm the leader of a cult when I, you know, when people say that, right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, if it is, (laughs) if it's, if it is, you know, I'm not going out giving uh, sacrifices to the sun or anything. So, but I am carrying uh, the holsters that you designed with, uh, monotonous regularity so
1: there we go that's that's.
0: yeah and it's funny i've been carrying them about five years now and just now uh in the last probably year maybe even like six months i've seen a lot of cops especially in my area that have finally drank the kool-aid made the investment and they're carrying a keeper's holster
1: carrying appendix on it, a keeper that's awesome
0: yeah that's a, awesome a lot of undercover officers and it's funny that the ones that do when they get there they've either trained with you trained with somebody that's trained with you and they're starting to see some some of the fundamental stuff i think is way overthought and they're
1: oh th- totally 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 you know uh, had a had under won't talk about had undercover dude in the class, uh, this last weekend. And, uh, he was carrying a strong side and he was shooting next to me and, you know, I was just crushing him on drills. And, uh, he was like, dude, I have to have one of those holsters. You know, I got to figure out how to carry appendixes. You know, we talked about that a little bit because there's just so many, there's so many advantages to it, but, Going back to talk about the fundamentals, one of the things that you know we talk about coming from World War II, the the problem that happened right after that is our pistol work, especially our pistol work, our rifle work was, you know, rifle work hasn't changed a whole lot, right? Um, uh, you know, as far as like high power rifle stuff like that, you yeah, know, shooting long range, um, you know. It, when I say it hasn't changed a lot, it has it's changed monumentally Uh in, in the gear and the calibers and the capability and all that. But the, the fundamentals hasn't shifted so much from that as they have from a pistol. Yeah. Back then, everything was based off bullseye, slow fire, pistol shooting, one-handed. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So – you, you start coming into the modern age and we start seeing these guys shooting competitions and they're putting both hands on the gun. And instead of embracing that, we said, oh, well, that shit will get you killed in the streets. And we spent, I mean, how many years, decades, and how much ink and blood has been spilled over combat training versus target training, um, and only now are we getting to the point where uh, I will say the better trainers, the people that are open to exploring new techniques, uh, are shooting competition
0: and carrying a gun for a living. Yeah, I. You know, and on the the police side of that, like you know, on the civilian the civilian side, you're talking bullseye, one handed strong hand slow fire time fire rapid fire etc right. etc on the police side of that in the 60s what permeated in was police pistol combat ppc and yes all based on six shot revolver stuff and it's a phenomenal course of fire i mean it's a it's a great it's a great game i'll put it that way i think and right. And that's kind of the way I look at bullseye. I think when you get into surgical accuracy with a handgun, there is no greater like true test of ability, but it's, it's, it's very static. It's very controlled. It's very regimented. Right. Yeah. And oddly enough, the police circles have been really, pardon me for saying this guys, but tardy to the party as far as, with running handguns because a lot of our semi-auto based handgun training, and I talked about this with Lee Weems last week, a lot of it is rooted in revolver neutral PPC based courses. So on the, you know, on the civilian side, a lot of it comes out of bullseye. On our side, a lot of it kind of shifted from bullseye because let's face it, the cops were late to the game with semi-autos. You know, we're talking 1990, probably three, four before it was widespread throughout law enforcement with semi-auto handguns. And when the military yes. had had that for almost 80 years. So right. I've also, I sat down with a, a, a fellow shooter, an instructor, who's a bullseye shooter, USPSA shooter. He's a, he's a really, I would say, high-level shooter and well-rounded. And I started asking him about, okay, what do you focus on fundamentally when you're shooting bullseye? And the two things I never heard anything about were trigger control. Not one time. I thought. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Exactly. It was all position, basically cementing your position to allow for stability to make extremely surgically accurate shots. He also shot Olympic air pistol and he goes, our triggers are measured in ounces. There's no such thing as trigger control in that realm, which Right. Leads me to believe that a lot of the fundamental stuff is contextual. And I think we don't Oh absolutely. We don't look at it as we look at it as a blanket statement and not a context of what what our go- our end goal is.
1: You know, was listening to, you know, Latham talk about his, you know, his theory on this. And you know, it's taken him forty years, he says, to develop a jerk and a flinch. And we would, you know five years ago, if you'd have told me oh, well, I jerk and flinched a gun, I'd have been like, Oh man, your trigger control needs some work. And now I'm like, I jerk the trigger and flinch. And when I do that, I control the trigger and the gun doesn't move during the trigger press. And my sights leave the target and come right back to the target because I've jerked a trigger and flinched <laughs> <laughs> and-, and I'm controlling recoil, you know, and again, you know, five years ago, uh, if you'd use those terms to me I'd have been like dude we got to work with you you know can't do that
0: so i think everybody kind of is cognizant of jerking the trigger and basically pulling it rapidly backwards and i think we blamed a lot of things on that motion i love the way rob describes the flinch talk to that point just a bit
1: so you know the the flinch is occurring Right as the shot breaks. Okay. And um, what we're trying to do, what, what happens at that point in time is once the body gets, you know, you shoot a few rounds and the body gets pushed on, the body becomes really good at anticipating when that push is going to happen. Right? Yeah. Our, our nerve loop, if you will, from our brain to our trigger finger to our hand and back. That all becomes a real fast neural pathway, and as the gun pushes on us, if we really want to shoot fast, we need to push back on the gun. Right? The sooner we push back on the gun, the sooner the sights will realign on the target or dot, whichever one you have. Uh-huh. And if you were to put a, a a snap cap or a dummy round in my magazine, and I was shooting relatively fast or very fast. When I got to that round and the hammer fell, you would see the gun dip down. And people would call, people would say, oh, well, you flinched. That shouldn't happen. And that's not necessarily correct. If I've learned to manage recoil, as soon as the gun goes off, I'm pushing back on the gun because the gun's going to push on me. Well, if the gun doesn't go off, that doesn't mean that my body didn't expect it to. So if I move the gun down, that's a perfectly natural movement to make, and that's not a flinch.
0: Man, that is like controversial as it gets, right there.
1: Right? Is it not? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a conversation I had with, and I and I I, I honestly can't remember which instructor it was. Um, I just remember the 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 result of the the conversation. He was talking about. Some some dude in the bullseye world that's like super famous. Uh, I think he was actually on Top Shot. Might have won Top Shot back when the yeah. the series Top Shot was on the History Channel. Um, but he's a you know known as the Ice Man. He's a, a, a bullseye shooter, right? Mm-hmm. And they were they were shooting uh, together at one point in time, where he was watching this dude shoot, and the dude had a dead primer. Now this is a bullseye guy we're talking about, right? Typically, as you watch them shoot, they'll break the trigger. The gun will rise. They'll pause the gun in the air and then realign everything. Right. The gun doesn't typically doesn't, you know, you won't see them push the gun uh, like controlling recoil. They'll just let recoil happen and let the gun stop wherever it needs to. Well, this guy shot around and had a dead primer. And when the hammer fell, he moved the gun down. And everybody was like, oh, my God, you, you, you flinched on that round. He's like, no, I didn't. Scythes were exactly where I wanted them to when the hammer fell. I was just expecting the gun to go off, so I moved the gun down to control recoil. That's a huge difference between flinching before the gun goes off, or as I like to say, I'm getting my post-ignition push pre-ignition yeah that's bad (laughs) that (laughs) that leads to that leads to misses. (laughs) that's me how i know
0: yeah and where my mind completely changed about it and i know you probably saw some of the videos i pushed pushed out on social media of some shooters that i was training this is when i started to believe that you know trigger control is to me, is making the gun go off when it should, when I want it to. Grip is absolutely one hundred percent, probably the top of the list of important things, because far,
1: far more important than trigger.
0: Right. I showed this to some some really high level instructors, and They're like, oh well, they jerked the trigger and they pulled the gun low left, and I'm like, nah. What I could yeah. see, and I started using the app Coach's Eye, and this I'm it's not a product plug, but it's the best app that I've found on the phone that I can slow down things because I would be working with shooters and watching them like with my eyes two, three inches from their, their grip and their, their, their trigger. I'm going, man, they they don't uh, like all the, their group is low left or it's off the paper at 10 yards, but everything looks all right right here. So I started using that app to really kind of be able to slow down and dissect that. And what I would see is their shooting hand clamped down on the gun pre-ignition, move the entire gun out of alignment. That really unwound everything I ever thought about shooting and made me go, I don't care how you pull the trigger, pull it straight back. That's the goal. But don't change your grip on the gun. Establish it, get it tight, get it firm. Don't move it. It's so much simpler to process than the old, well, you jerk the trigger. So people immediately equate that with, I have to press the trigger slow.
1: So there's a huge difference between pressing and gripping and gripping and pressing. It's monumentally different. If you press and grip, you're sympathetically moving the entire hand at the same time you're moving the trigger finger and you'll see the gun either moves low left or low or left or, you know, typically for a right-handed shear opposite of that for left-handed shear. If you grip and then press, the gun has a far better chance of staying stable. The sight settling on the target, you'll make the hit really regardless of how you operate the trigger. One of the things, you know, Rob, Rob would say is, is, you know, I slap trigger and everybody's like, Oh, well, you know, you're shooting a one pound 1911 trigger. So you can do that. And he's like, you know, no, I can do that. Cause I'm Rob Latham, which is the funniest thing you'll hear. <laughs> you have to be there to hear him say, right. It, you know? And, uh, cause it's totally a joke. What they don't really get are the people that will dismiss that because, Oh, well, he's a competition shooter. He's shooting a light trigger, etc." is the same thing can be done for a standard duty weight trigger. Now, yes, I'll admit if you get into the, you know, New York 12-pound trigger, this is going to be more difficult to do than it is with a, you know, five-pound Glock trigger, you know, five-pound 320 trigger or whatever. The ultimate object of doing that is pressing the trigger and not moving the gun. And that's where grip becomes such an important part because if you do that – you know, you can make hits all the time. I know you do it, I do it, several other instructors do it, and, and I saw Rob do it, uh, we will get a student, and they'll be having issues with moving the gun. Really, what we will say is they're having issues with trigger controllers. That's what most people will say. But the real issue is they're moving the gun during the trigger press. They're pressing and gripping. They're doing something other than gripping and pressing. So we'll have them grip the gun, align it on a target, prep the trigger of the wall, and on the nu of now, we'll have them shoot the, shoot the gun or we'll have a shot timer. And as soon as the buzzer beeps, I want you to press the trigger as violently as you can. And if they do that subconsciously, if they do that as soon as they hear that sound, they'll shoot the smallest little group in the center of the target that they've ever done. Mm -hmm. And they'll look at you in utter amazement. And I do that with virtually every student. Because that way, when doing that, I'm teaching their subconscious what the trigger press should feel like. That way, when they ingrain that, that way it frees their conscious mind up into shooting a competition. I need to move from here to there. I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to step my, I need to put my feet here to shoot this next target, et cetera, police or, you know, self-defense world is, you know, that guy's, that guy's moving. He's draw a knife or a gun or whatever. This is what I need to do. And running the gun becomes subconscious. That's where we really need to be.
0: Yeah. And I'll, I'll do you one one step further on that, I've done a lot of, uh, I'll call it research, but it more like informal data collection. And what I discovered using uh, timers and getting people to react to the the auditory stimulus while they're looking through the sites. So the sites, they see them just as this acceptable thing out there. As long as they would keep the trigger press, jerk, whatever you call it, keep their grip steady and if they would activate the gun in under a quarter of a second that seems to be the breaking point yes. that their body would yes. not prepare for recoil and then start grip, start to clamp on the gun and it doesn't take long of doing that before you start training their subconscious that when the sights are acceptable the shot goes off and it's just a movement of the trigger finger. If they went over a quarter of a second, their body would start to do weird stuff because we're not in reactionary gap. We're now into conscious thought plane. And correct. Correct. The other, the other aspect of the flip side of that is when I would put people on decision-making targets where they have to find a number, a letter, a shape, a color, a representation of something, meaning a stop sign shape, you know, an octagon. If All I right. if I was if I had them in that mode and they're shooting terrible and I made their mental process start, and the trigger <laughs> activating the trigger and making the gun go off became secondary, they would shoot per they would right. perfectly center a shot up and i th- i was yes. like man what what's the deal and it what it was is we're overloading the bandwidth in the decision making plane to where the the activation of the gun becomes you force it to become subconscious yep. i've had i've had several classes of people doing that and it opened my eyes to we have to learn to react to sights in about a quarter of a second they need to be where they need to be for about a quarter of a second i'm not talking surgical bullseye here i'm talking Right. For me to shoot a person-sized target with some semblance of accuracy in the high center chest, it needs to happen in that that quarter-second reaction or that reactionary plane.
1: Yeah, that that whole quarter second has been uh, that's that's a, that's really a science that has been that has been looked at and and uh, thought over and discussed and all that. A quarter second is roughly human reaction time. So if you can break that shot in, in sub-quarter second-ish, you, you typically make outstanding hits doing that. I think once you get that down and you start really learning how to, you know, really run the gun and make, make good hits at speed, you know, of course, in my class and your classes, you know, I, I really push that accuracy at speed element, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, one, one of the things I find is there is a lot of good work that gets done with a handgun in between um, about f- maybe four tenths and three tenths, you know, somewhere in that like half to quarter second splits. Um, you can do really good surgical work uh, at that speed on just about any target. I've talked to a lot of guys. I know you have a lot of guys that have been there, done that, seen the elephant many times, and uh, they talk about that time frame because the thing also, which you just mentioned is it gives you to do is it allows your mental capacity to figure out what's going on and make decisions. Where if we start, if we start shooting splits, you know, we start 20s and under, Your mind doesn't really have time, which is awesome for competition. Don't get me wrong. Awesome for competition. But for, you know, for you guys, for the police, it doesn't give their mind a whole lot of time to make decisions um, and react to what is actually going on. Uh, So that's, I think that's one thing to think about, especially uh, for the uh, self-defense shooters um, is Trying to keep that to a point or training yourself to a point where you can shoot those below quarter second splits, if you will, to maintain and maintain that accuracy and then have the ability to back off that just a little bit so you can include the decision making as well.
0: I've spent a lot of time talking to talking to fellow cops that have been in, in shootings and what I've found is the ones that are confident with a handgun. And I'm talking in not even just instructor level. I'm talking about the guys that put in the time and they put in the science of it. Those people, one, they let things digress further than the average person would be because they're confident that I may not have to shoot this person right now because I have the skill to do it and do it really quickly. And the other thing is they are the ones that are very trained to that level. They are keenly aware of much more of the incident or much more of the surroundings, much more of the things going on than people that lack that confidence with their handgun. They're able to make split-second decisions because operating the gun is the easy part. It's not... it's not the x factor in it it's it's the it's the known everything else they can process and all of them unequivocally have said i don't remember seeing my sights on the bad guy never saw him i was never aware that there was any resistance in the trigger not one time not one time have i heard a person say i pulled the trigger to the wall when it sat there, I pressed through it gently and didn't disturb the sights. Not one time. It was right. I clamped, yep. I death gripped the gun, and I pulled the trigger as fast as I could until the threat stopped. I mean, right. that's almost like almost a ten for ten, hundred percent of the the responses that I've gotten. And and I mean, you're talking about people that have been through a traumatic event, so you have to have some rapport with them to get to that level of minutia. That kind of changed the way that I taught was like, well, am I worried about surgical accuracy if I'm trying to get a gun between me and the bad guy and make the most efficient and accurate hits as I can within reason?
1: You know, a little bit on that is I, I hate to say this, but there's there's instructors out there that tell you speed doesn't matter. And I think that is an absolute horrible lie. Speed does matter. You know Wayne Dobbs and Daryl Blokes talked about uh, two uh, two you know legendary cops. Both of them seen the elephant many times. They talk about their two second standards. Is you've got about two seconds to when you start to see the fight develop. You've got about a two second window to react and do something to it, right? Well, you know if your draw stroke takes two and a half seconds, you're going to be behind the power curve. If your drawstrokes takes one second, like you know yours and eyes really do, it's not necessarily that being fast is all that. It's it gives us more time to make decisions. I've got a whole second more time to make a decision. Do I really need to shoot this dude? Is this really what's going on? Than the guy that's got a two and a half or three second drawstroke. And the other way I like to look at you know speed is speed is just like strength in a fight. I don't know how much strength I need in a fight, but I sure wouldn't want any less of it. If I knew I was, you know, if I had an option of getting in a fight tomorrow or six months from now when I could deadlift 500 pounds, I would absolutely take the, you know, six months at 500 pound deadlift because I'm going to perform better. Speed is a huge component of this, but then we've got to get, just like you said, we've got to get to the point that we can control the gun not move the gun during the trigger press at a high rate of speed
0: you know there's not many people out there that that have a a, i would even say a sub 1.5 draw from a duty rig that's about where i live is about 1.5 with control out of a duty rig and a second to a second and a quarter out of concealment from appendix which blows people's mind that gun's exposed i can see it and it takes a quarter second longer to get it out and do work than from from hiding and I'm like, well, yeah, it's just the nature of it. Now, depending on target distance size, you know, a, a close target, okay, maybe I'm at maybe I'm at 0.85 from the duty rig because I'm, you know, the whole aiming process is streamlined. Right. And that right. that's one of uh man, I'm going to give away a secret here. One of the big things in my classes is once you take away the actual activation of the handgun, and you put that in the subconscious plane to where sights become your indicator to, to activate the gun, your speed is not determined by how fast you can go. It's determined by the size of the target you're presented and the distance of the target. That's it. Does that yes. make sense? Like, how? Oh, what yeah, do yeah. I need to see exactly? How much do I need to see to do what I need to do? But Yes we spend an inordinate an inordinate amount of time talking about things that just don't really matter. I feel like it just as a whole, and I'm not saying we like me and you or some of the other instructors, yeah, yeah, yeah. but as a community of instructors, we, there's an inordinate amount of time devoted to trigger reset. <laughs> it's like, come on guys.
1: Oh. Gross! You 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 just said like the magic word. That's the trigger. Like if I was king, if I was king for a day, I would eliminate pinning the trigger to the rear. That would become a capital pun, a capital punishment crime. You would just get axed,
0: flogged, right? Publicly flogged.
1: Um, yes, tarred and feathered, all that. Um, so th- to deal with pinning the trigger to the rear. Is uh, and and Latham talked about this. You know the uh, the cool thing um, with him is he's been around forty years. He's been doing this for forty years, so he knows where all this stuff came from, where it developed. You've seen all the cycles of, you know, uh, of and we see this, you know, repeat. You know, there's just cycles. There's nothing really new. It's just a new, you know, new spin on things, if you will. So, talk about pinning the trigger to the rear. Um, apparently, uh, there's a few places that, you know, people will say that started from one it may have started way back in the, uh, you know, in the military with rifles, uh, shooting high power, you press the trigger and hold the trigger to the rear. So you didn't disturb the sights and the bullet was leaving the barrel. So then we take that and we apply that to handguns. Uh, it did also come from Glock because Glock was like, hey, we've got this real distinct reset point in our triggers. So we're going to market that as a uh, as an advantage, as a, as a, um, uh, what's a good word for it, uh, an enhancement to our product, right? And uh, other, other guns don't have this. Go ahead.
0: I want to speak on that for a minute. Did you know yeah. that little S spring in the back of everything up to Gen 4? you could completely omit that from the gun. Please don't take this as advice to go do that. And as long as you pinned the trigger, the gun would reset. So if yep. that part broke, yep. you could get. Would, he,
1: the gun would continue to work if you pin the trigger
0: to the rear. Which I'm, hey, great. That's a hey. great thing to know, right? Like, hey, right. Oh, it's yeah. not. never breaks. And I'm, I didn't believe it until I had another fellow instructor that goes, here's where that came from. By the way, check this out. If that galvanized spring takes a poop right in the middle of battle, well, the way we can train around it is just teach people to keep the trigger back until the gun's back closed and the trigger will reset. Because that
1: that was the number one part that broke on all the early Glocks.
0: Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. that.
1: that. Yeah, yeah. So they didn't, on on the trigger bar, they weren't deburring the hole that the spring goes through. So it was starting to cut the spring hook in half. And what would happen is as you shot the gun, that spring would just, that hook on the spring would break. And, you know, if you, again, if you didn't pin the trigger to the rear, the trigger would go dead. Um, so Glock being, you know, the, the, the master at making a product sell, touted that as a benefit so what we're going to do is we're going to move the trigger less. So the, le- and we all say speed is the economy of motion, right? The less body movements we do, the faster it's going to be. Well, so they were like, well, what we're going to do is we're going to pin the trigger to the rear and slowly let it out to the loud, distinct audible reset. Yeah. And then, and then shoot again.
0: And if anybody from the blocks listening, we're not bagging on your product, bro. I, they're a marvel of engineering and I appreciate them greatly and I shoot them just as well as anybody else. And when people ask me, what's, what gun should I buy? They get you. I know you get that one all the time. Like if I oh, want yeah, a defensive yeah. handgun, what would you recommend? I start with, I'm like Glock 19, just go get a Glock 19 and let's just move on with life. Like, uh, yeah, start absolutely. there. You
1: know, I've carried Glocks forever.
0: Oh, I remember and when I you carried four. four
1: of them, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> at least two. <laughs>
1: um, you know, couldn't leave home without at least two on. Uh, right. I remember those days of, of ignorance. <laughs> well, it's just and, it's uh, just
0: the the normal growing pains that we all go through as defensive yes. firearm carriers.
1: Yeah, um, and you know that that is. Like now, if you really look for it, you can find the information and you can become so much better educated so quickly now, it's not even funny. You know, we had to, we had to suffer through all this stuff that's now immediately available to, to, to most people that's willing to look and, and or pay for it. But let's get back to the trigger reset real quick. Yeah. So so let's talk about this for just a little bit in the firing process of the gun. So say we're starting from the first shot, we draw the gun, the gun comes up, we see alignment, we see, as you know, Enos says, we see what we need to see in the sights or the dot, uh, and we press the trigger. Once that's happened, the gun cycles, and then we pin the trigger to the rear and slowly let the trigger out to the reset point, at which time most instructors, uh, especially on a small target and I'll try and loop both of these together. We'll say, take your time, right? So you'll see people pin the trigger to the rear. The shots break. They pin the trigger to the rear, and they continue to aim. They align the sights. They let the trigger out to the reset point. And then as soon as they hear the click, no matter where the sights are, they press the trigger again. That's what I see on the vast majority of people that have been trained to pin the trigger to the rear, is the sights don't really become the indicator to shoot the gun again. The click does, especially under timer pressure or a match pressure or shooting a standard, like if you've got a qual, right? Right. Um, uh, And I don't know if your experience is mirrors that or not.
0: Mine is... I kind of go a little deeper into like the indicator being that they, they feel and hear a click when the trigger resets. Uh, Uh, and and I'm all for if, if the reset is loud and proud and you can feel it and all that, my goal is to feel that under recoil and I'm sure it's yours as well, or to not even know it uh, was ever there.
1: Right. But that's really mine is I don't, I don't, I don't, if, if we're operating the trigger correctly, we're not going to be aware of that, that, that reset. Um, we're going to try and start getting off the trigger as soon as the shot breaks. And then I don't, and, and I've got some slow-mo video. We talking about this uh-huh. very subject from the class and uh, of, of Seeklander shooting a 1911. Um, so But as soon as the shot breaks, the way we should work it is we're going to try and get off the trigger as fast as we can and then prep the trigger back to the wall if the shot requires it or press straight through the trigger if the shot requires it, depending on the difficulty of the shot. So we would really have two different trigger presses. We've got a press and then a press to the wall. Right. Right. So we're going to prep the trigger to the wall or we're going to press straight through it. Um, but if you pin the trigger to the rear, you're taking way more time to shoot the next shot than the next shot probably really requires. And, um, what I would see just constantly is I would say good shooters, especially under timer pressure of shooting. Like say, we're going to set them up and shoot the test 10 rounds at 10 seconds at 10 yards on a, on a B8 bullseye with a ninety or better to pass. Um, that's, you know, that's a, we've shot that together and that's, that's a pretty tight, uh, standard, you know, um,
0: it's a good blanket uh,
1: standard. Uh, uh, It really is. Yeah. I mean, it really is. You know, that was popularized by Larry Larry Vickers and uh, Ken Hackathorn is, and I hear different stories on who came up with it first. So I really don't know. Um, but anyhow, you know, we put them under that kind of pressure and we'll see their shooting degrade if they're pinning the trigger to the rear yeah. where if you just let them shoot at whatever pace they want, pinning the trigger to the rear can be a very accurate people can make very accurate shots doing that. Um, but they typically can't do that under stress.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the one thing I'll, uh, I'll give you and everybody else, this exercise that's really cool you know, we start with people with their trigger finger on the wall. If you want to right. see the flip side of that and how detrimental that is, have them start with the trigger pin to the rear and hit a timer. Yes. I'm telling and it, it is, that's when you throw the brown stuff into the circular thing on the ceiling. Uh, and Correct. the best way that I've been able to kind of analyze that, and I've been doing some dives into like reactionary time of, professional athletes and stuff like that is letting the trigger go. If it's pinned becomes in the con it it exists in the conscious plane. At that point, I have to let this thing reset. Now I have to take it back to where it's ready to fire. So you've now taken two quarter of a two quarters of a second, a half a second, potentially to think through those things and what does that yes. give your brain time to do? Go, uh-oh, explosions coming in my hand, clamp down on the yep. gun. And it's yep. funny how...
1: Press and grip.
0: Yes. And if you want to see it firsthand, have somebody pin the trigger to the wall and hit a timer. And inevitably, it will be a click-bang, and it'll be in that yep. quarter of a second window. But their brain is still processing... I've got to let the trigger go. So the sights become yeah. inconsequential people that are highly Correct. disciplined shooters. When you do that exercise with them, you'll hear click prep press and you, and it will take about three fourths of a second. It's crazy. Correct. And they go, and people yeah. go, well, you're shooting slower. And the guy that's trained will go, I don't feel that because I do it in reset but they're making two conscious processes in there. And then the shot becomes, "Oh, the sites are where they need to be pow. Uh, so that's a, if you really want to screw up some good shooters, that's a, (laughs) that's a great way to do it. Um, but I've seen how detrimental that can become.
1: That's the thing for me is, is we're, it's so detrimental. We're handicapping the shooters, so if they, you know, if they want to start rising above where they are, that's like the first habit that we've got to, to make them break. And we, we saw that in the class. I saw that in the class this weekend. We had, you know, some great law enforcement officers there from the uh, highway patrol, and, uh, you know, one of them, that's, that's what he had been taught. That's what he does. You know, he was pinning the trigger to the rear. So as soon as we got him to stop doing that, his shooting improved drastically. But he doesn't have that subconscious yet. So he's still, he's, he's doing the other thought. Is he's having to think about getting his finger off the trigger, you know, and, uh, and, and eventually that will be, just become second nature. And once he does that, his quote, trigger control will improve drastically. It's it, getting off the trigger and prepping the trigger to the wall is probably, one of the most important skills you can develop with a handgun. Um, obviously, you know we both believe that grip is more important trigger than trigger, and it is. Uh, well, Let's <clears throat> talk about grip for just a second. Going to go down a rabbit hole here, real quick. Perfect. the 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 biggest thing about grip, and what most instructors don't really spend a lot of emphasis on. Is we can take all this, you know. I talk about grip as gripping it, gripping the gun in an X. You know, I have a very distinct way of the way I grip the gun. Yeah. Well, if we can just get our hands high on the gun, get get our hands where they're locked together, where there is no gap in between our thumbs, and grip the gun hard, that helps tremendously. But the that's where most people leave off. Okay. But when we talk about when we talk about grip. The most important thing is that our, once we get our hands on the gun, that the grip pressure never changes through the string of fire. And that's where, uh, that's where you see just huge benefit to your shooting because if the grip never changes, you're always gripping and pressing instead of pressing and gripping. When you start to press and grip at the same time, you see the gun start to start to move because of that, just that sympathetic response in mm-hmm. our hands. It's going to move the gun. But if our grip pressure never changes and all we do is press the trigger, uh, our potential for making accurate shots just is exponentially better.
0: Yeah. And I've I've done this with uh, a couple of people I've worked privately with, some cops, some not. Uh one in particular had some uh some some issues with with their their firing hand, their primary, their dominant hand, let's say. Cause I don't ever like right. to use the word weak hand. I think that just that's cliched. I, I want both of my hands to be able to do the same thing with the pistol. <laughs> but beside the point. I agree. So first thing I did was, you know, hey, we're gonna do some drills on command lots of finger on the trigger, which is completely opposite of what a lot of people have taught over the years. It's like, Hey, let's get the leverage on that to where it comes straight back and then take the slack out of the trigger and fire on the beat, on the beat, on the beat. Um, Yes. And this, this particular person had this nerve damage in the firing hand and thought that it was going to be detrimental. And I said, well, explain to me what it does. Well, I don't have as much strength in my dominant hand in my, middle finger, ring finger and pinky finger. And I went, "Oh, perfect." So that means you can't grip the gu- <laughs> like you can't clamp down on the gun when your body's telling you, "Uh-oh, explosion, time to time to grip hard, doing the pressing and gripping." No. But- I said, "Well, I mean, not that I'm going to damage my hand on purpose, but like that's the optimal circumstances when that won't move when my body's telling it to move or there's a delay in that neurosynopsis there." So we did at five yards on a four inch circle, shoots three, four rounds in under a quarter of a second, right in the center. And then this person looks at me and goes, well, will that work at 10 yards? And I said, I don't know. Let's go see. So we go to 10 yards, four inch circle, choose the center out of it. And then this person looks at me again and says, well, will that work at 25 yards? And I said, I apologize. I've never done this at 25 yards. I've done it at seven yards and in to coach shooters on how to develop that subconscious neural performance. Right? So we go to 25 yards and this person's chewing the center out of a four inch circle. And I'm like that gun with that ammo, I know has about a four inch that that's about what can be expected at 25 yards. And then ups the ante on me one more time as an instructor and says, well, hey, there's nobody else here. Let's go back to 50 yards and see if this works. So I put, I said, all right, I'm going to put a B8 down there at 50 yards. So I glued up a B8 and I said, but if let's try it on the four inch circle there. And I kid you not, four out of five rounds were in a four inch circle, and the average reaction time was 0.17. And I was like, I mean, my mouth dropped open, and this. This person I was working with goes, that's incredible, and I was like, I completely agree because I've been doing this drill for like two and a half, three years, and I've never seen that happen. And now, right, right. one of my warm up drills is BC zone steel at fifty yards with my finger on the button and hitting point one, trying to hit sub quarter second, and just to get my brain tuned into the gun's gonna float. The gun's going to move. Don't worry about the movement in the gun. Just pull the trigger. And then translating that to when I see the sights where I need them, I pull the trigger and that's it. There's nothing more that needs to happen. But, uh, But that little exercise completely blew my mind for one i wish you would have been there to see it i it was a day i wish i would have called you and be like dude you gotta check this out but i mean four <laughs> right. out of five rounds in a four inch circle at 50 yards with 147 grain spear lawman and a gen four glock i kid you not and it, man yeah That's i'm awesome. like that i don't know that that gun's capable of shooting that accurate with that ammo combination in a ransom rest. So that right. tells me that the perception of the human eye is better than a mechanical rest.
1: You know, one of the, one of the things I talk about a lot of times we, uh, in my classes, I talk about wobble zone. I describe the science uh-huh. moving as a wobble zone. Right. And I got that from shooting competitive archery, uh, 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 not uh, not traditional archery you know uh-huh. uh, compound bow release like 3d yeah 3d you know archery uh, and uh, <clears throat> well i my pin which is essentially sight if you want to think about it that way we're looking through a peep sight at a pin you know I'm focusing on the pin I'm putting the pin on the target so essentially I'm doing exactly what we do with with handgun sights i'm looking through the rear side and focusing on the front side uh t- typically um especially for a low percentage target like that and i'll just let the bow or the gun wobble and worry about the trigger which is exactly what you just said and amazingly enough you know back in the day i'd shoot you know two inch groups at 60 or 80 yards with my with my compound bow. And, but my pin movement was more than that.
0: Or so, so you thought. To me,
1: it just perception well, no, of it, the eyes. It, well, see, I think it's just a little different. I think I'm, I think I see what I see, right? I see that movement being more than that. But when you release consistently or press the trigger consistently, I believe it draws the sights to the center of the target. Really, but you can't yeah i, I do i uh, but you can't do it now it it just had or at least with a with at least with a compound bow because the release is cl- completely different than with the trigger because i'm actually squeezing my shoulder blades together to make the the, the release go uh, versus with a handgun i'm pressing the trigger with my finger um, but yeah i believe that there is a little magic. And that's the only way I can describe it. That, that centers the sites as soon as um, the release goes off or the trigger breaks. So um, take that for what it's worth. I th- I think there's something in that.
0: You know, one of the, one of the studies I've kind of done as far as, you know, when we look back in history and we've kind of bounced all over the place in this, this conversation, but as I look back at the way that fundamentals were written and things like that, what I've started to kind of equate, and I could be completely wrong, I've been wrong before, I have, however, never been lost, I've just forgotten where I was a time or six. But okay. <laughs> but uh, the fundamentals as written for target shooting and, and bullseye and things like that, the more I dive into the minutiae of how the body works and the neural pathways work and reaction times work, the more I'm starting to see that a lot of the way that we've written and taught fundamentals was just to counteract our body's natural tendency to prepare for recoil. Make sense? I
1: would, I would agree. Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly.
0: Yeah, um, I, and I'm talking follow through, grip, stance, sight alignment, sight picture. It's it's funny with dot shooters, there is I, I don't really believe in sight alignment with dot shooters. <laughs> it's just there's a picture, that's about it. So right. anyway, but but I started to kind of quantify, okay, why do we teach grip this way? Why have people said, "Well, you need to relax your grip." I know you've heard that. Well, you've you've got to relax yes. your grip a little bit. Well, that's because for us to shoot accurately, we're preparing for recoil and gripping and not pressing. So that's our body's telling us there's about to be an explosion in your hand and it's going to kick. So we need to get yeah. ready for that. Uh, when it comes to natural respiratory pause, I've heard that phrase over and over. Well, fire the shot at your natural respiratory pause. Well, that's just to eliminate a little wiggle in the sights. And it's also to make sure that we're not holding our breath in preparation for the explosion and the recoil. Because, you know, when you're in a haunted house and you get scared, you suck a bunch of wind and you hold your breath because that is yeah. your body's don't know nap- what's happening next. There you go, right? We're prepping for the yep. worst. and. That is something that is born into us, and if it's not, I think you're a sociopath, but the, or a psychopath, whatever. You right. know what I'm yeah. saying? Like those things, yeah. that involuntary fear response of loud, you know, bright flash, loud noise, and something flying backwards at me. With oh, I'm shooting a semi-auto, right? So you got a slide coming back <laughs> right. at you. Your body doesn't know that that's not going to hit you in the face your mind can tell it that but your body still reacts to it the same way until you train it that that's not going to happen so i started breaking down each one of these fundamentals and i went oh well that's because there's going to be a big bright loud noise big bright flash yes, and a loud noise about. the people that inherently are not are either children that don't know better or there are people that have trained that response out of themselves. That's one of the reasons that, you know, I went through NRA basic pistol instructor here just real recently, right? Some of the things were people talking about giving their children respect for a firearm. And I'm like, the worst thing you can do is make them afraid of it. Like give them a 12-gauge yeah, shotgun when they're seven and make uh, them pull the I
1: hate that so much.
0: Because you, and ask me how I know... I've got the scar from the model 29. That is a way to give them a fear of recoil at such an early age. And it builds such a neural pathway that it takes years to overcome it.
1: Yeah. That, unfortunately, you know, that's, you know, that's so common. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. Yeah. Um, that is just like, it, it, it just atrociously wrong to do to anyone. Um, You know, talk about a a female shooter that's never shot a gun before. You know, oh, well, you know, here's my uh, 12 gauge, three and a half inch Magnum. You know, shoot that. You know, she weighs 85 pounds. Mm -hmm. That's going to end up with her never wanting to shoot a gun again in her life. Uh, And that's horrible for the Second Amendment and the community. So, yeah, buddy, listen out there, stop doing that. Just Uh, stop it. But you talk just a little bit about, you know, talking about having instructors talking about relaxing your grip, right? Uh-huh. Um, and and I'm sure you've heard this before, as of you know, some instructors will say, well, how do you grip the gun? Well I grip it, you know, 70% with my support hand and 30% with my strong hand or 60-40 or, you know, whatever. You've heard mm-hmm. those those different things. And uh so Rob was talking about that this weekend and his comment was this. Somebody asked that question, and he goes, I grip the gun 100% and 100%. I grip it with 200% of pressure anytime I can put both hands on, it, which is exactly how I grip it. Mm-hmm. And he said, You'll never be able to grip the gun harder with your support hand than you do your strong hand because there's more of the hand on the gun with your strong hand. And there's less you have some, you know, uh, um, inability to do that. Right. right.
0: Uh, and there's more dexterity uh, and there's more physical strength in your dominant hand. There just is, it's just physiology. Just right.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, unless you, unless you train it to the point that your hands are equal uh, or as close as you can get them. And even then, I think you'll always have more dexterity with your dominant hand because it just does more stuff. Rob said he believes what happened is somewhere a student asked that question in a class and the instructor looked at him and said to himself, Hmm, I really don't know because I just gripped the gun, but I'm going to come up with something fancy to say and say, I gripped the gun 60 40 that has just permeated throughout the instructor and especially the civilian competition world. I don't know how many times I've been doing, you know, a USPSA match or something like that IDPA match and overheard people talking about that very thing yeah uh but you know going back to that just it's way more important that the grip pressure doesn't change through the shooting cycle that's like the most important thing
0: yeah i can i i had an opportunity it broke finally it gave up the ghost but uh i had one of those grip pressure meters you can get them on amazon and i would pass that around in a class and I, you know, I'd, I'd grip down on it and I'd say, "Look, okay, look, I got 105 PSI and that's just me basically making a fist and not really making my elbow shake and all these things. Right. With my right hand, right. Yeah, yeah. my dominant hand. And then I would pass yeah. it over and I would have to really consciously exert force, but I would get it to right about the same number with the other one. And I'd say, look, I can grip it here. My brain tells me I have more dexterity here, more dominance there. So what I tell people when I to get around the 70-30, 60-40, 50, whatever, is, is like you should feel like you're gripping harder with your support hand, but the reality of it is you're gonna be gripping about with the same pressure you are as your 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 dominant hand. It's just the way your neurophysiology comes out is, man, I right. feel like I'm really bearing down with the support hand. Well, you put them on a grip meter and it's like, well, I'm doing this really easy or, or with some measured amount of effort, and I feel like I'm just really having to bear down with my support hand or my non-dominant hand. So what other sacred cows would you like to slaughter? Because we've, we've put a lot of them on the altar of marksmanship today. Right. <laughs> All
1: right, so this this is like one of my... Ones that I like to slaughter the most is take your time. And what does that mean? So one of the drills I do in my classes is, and like if if, if people ask me what's a drill that you would recommend, this is this is what it is. It's a three-two-one drill. Uh, I do it on the uh, the pistoltraining.com target. Uh, so it's an eight-inch circle a three by five card and a two inch dot. And you shoot the eight inch circle three times, a three by five card twice and the two inch dot once. Yeah. And when I talk about that, there is a real dichotomy that doesn't get explained about taking your time. Each, obviously I can't shoot the two inch dot as fast as I can shoot an eight inch circle. Right, I mean, it's just pure—it's just pure physics. I have to have the sights in a smaller orbiting pattern on a two-inch dot than I do an eight-inch circle. I can accept a lot of sight misalignment on an eight-inch dot. I can't really do that on a two-inch circle at say five yards. Uh, two-inch circle at five yards is, you know, for a lot of handgun shooters, a fairly sporty target. What a typical firearms instructor would tell you is if you shot that drill and you missed the two-inch dot, they would tell you, slow down. You're going too fast. And this is another one that Rob Slade, slowing down isn't the answer. Now, this is where the real dichotomy for me comes in. There There is a part of slowing down that is the answer. But you don't have to slow down an exorbitant amount of time to make a precise shot. And what I tell people is that split between the three-by-five card and the two-inch circle should roughly be a second or under. And people are going to go, "Oh, well, there's no way I can shoot a two-inch shot in one second. Just can't do it. Well, interestingly enough, if you align the sights – see what you need to see in the sights and press the trigger without disturbing. You can hit the two inch dot literally every single time. Mm -hmm. And I typically run that drill, that split when I'm running it to do a demo. And one of the things I have learned is I have, I have started to have to do my demos in really, I, I typically will do them in twos now, or I'll do a demo that is more realistic to what the class capability is because if i stand up there and do a uh in fact i did this in my texas class with a uh, and had a uh former legend in the special forces yeah their former delta team guy all that and uh, uh mike green green ops and i did the demo and i shot it was like a i shot at like 220 something which is so you're six shots at five yards with you know with, with two transitions involved in it and shooting a two inch dot. Uh, And when he played the video, he took video of it. And uh, when he sent me the video, when I watched it, I couldn't see what I was doing the first time I watched it. The gun just came up and went off six times. So when I did that demo, everybody was like, holy cow, you know? And I was like, let me do a demo a little slower. And I did that. And then they were able to step up and do that. Kind of where I'm going with that is, there is a point where you need to give the target more time but it doesn't have to be an exponentially amount of time what i would what i've seen in past classes that i haven't talked about this because we all is the, the more i teach the better i get at it right and the better i can answer questions the better i can you know demo the better i can help my students what i'd see is people would get to that two inch dot and that would be a four or five second pause before they would break the shot but that's all they've ever been told is you know if you're missing or you have a hard target slow down and you know I, i of course i got this from from rob slowing down is not the answer it's not moving the gun during the trigger press you've got to at least get enough site confirmation that the sights aren't orbiting out of your wobble zone is keeping the site on the target area. And then that's all the time you really need.
0: That kind of goes back to, and I don't take credit for this capturing this phrase, but what determines how fast I shoot size of my target in the distance. That's it. Right right size of my target and the di- I can't find any other x factor out there other than the size of my target and the distance it is away I don't equate that to the speed on the trigger as much as it is how much I need to process and see through the sights I've been doing some real deep dives on this the speed that I pull the trigger is determined by what I need to see to make that shot which happens to be the size of the target and the distance now you can you can dive off into the minutia of well I'm shooting the old standard Montana gold with four point blank 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 if I don't want to give away load data four
1: point one a tight group yeah <laughs>
0: allegedly don't do that at oh, home allegedly Go, yeah yeah refer I mean, to your reloading manual yes, <laughs> refer to your reloading manual for that but but you know what I'm saying like with whatever case length okay, I know that's capable of like two and a half inches at 50 yards with the right gun, right? So the other, uh, one of the things I struggle with getting people, or I don't struggle with, one of the things that people struggle with understanding is setting reasonable expectations for performance. Like I worked with a guy with a dot the other day and I put his gun at 25 yards and I put it They said, well, we can get you a bag. I'm like, I don't need a bag. I sat down on the bench, stabilized on a bench, boom, 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 three shot group. And it was at four inches. And I go, okay, this gun with this 115 grain ammo is going to do four inches. And they said, well, how do you know? I said, because I didn't, I didn't disturb anything that. And then I shot another three, three round group. And I went third shot, went high, right? I got on the trigger a little too fast and we bring the target in and he goes, How'd you know that? I'm like, because that's what I'm seeing. Like I, the trigger yeah. press part it's of it. Yeah, it's not. The trigger press is irrelevant. It's relevant in the context. It's relevant. But where the sites were at was more important to me at the time. All of that to say, let's talk for just a minute because we we may have a, a complete sacred side of beef, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> I think we just slayed them right. all we slayed the entire right side of the cow. So if you were going to give a piece of advice to a law enforcement officer trains law enforcement officers, what would be the one thing you would eliminate from training and the one thing you would replace it with for focus?
1: Oh, well, this, this may or may not be what you're looking for, but what, if it was me, what I would do, what I think would make the, the most impact on that is I would stop having the officers train with other officers and have them start training with a civilian.
0: You talking about in scenario based training
1: more no, more so in fundamental based training. Okay. More so in just the fundamentals of how we operate the gun. And I say that because, and I don't mean anything ill by this or, or, you know, I have the utmost respect for all of enforcement officers. You know that, right?
0: Well, except me, but you kind of, you kind of line. beat up on me a little well, bit.
1: Well, dude, dude you're <laughs> I've known you way too long, you know, It's like
0: 35 um, years. It's cool, man.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can remember, well, no, I won't go there, but you know, um, uh, so the reason I would say that is, what, what I see in the circles is when like other agencies train another agency or you have a, you know, a, and I'm not saying all of them do this, but you have a typical police firearms instructor. He's going to talk, he's going to teach what he has been taught and what was taught to him that was taught through another guy. Right. And that's what they're going to teach when they go, when you have, more than likely, if you train with especially a well-known civilian instructor, somebody that is that is known for uh, their performance with a handgun, let's say, you're going to get something different out of that, and it may be it may be that hey, quick pinning the trigger to the rear, and that may be all it is, but. Maybe doing that takes that, that fireman instructor takes that back to the department and says, hey, this is a new way we need to be doing this. This is what we need to be thinking about and implementing that. And you see your average qualification scores go up. Um, You know, I think that would be like, that's what comes to my mind immediately.
0: That's fair. I like that one. I'm fortunate and blessed to work for an agency that, uh, we have some, some range staff that, that actually go and, and train with other people. And that start that's started to, and has permeated down through the adjunct cadre. So I'm, I'm really, you know, kudos to those guys. And,
1: uh, yes, I really
0: appreciate them because I I know I've seen a cut. a couple of familiar faces in your class, but, but our full-time dudes, they, they put in the time and the work on, you know, going to an outside civilian. Uh, I know that they went through our, our buddy, uh, Scott Jelinski's red dot class just to get a handle on how can we run? Like, how can we implement this and take training to the next level? and it it yes. was kind of eye opening i think for some of them but uh they do a good job on that uh if you could change one thing in the civilian training circles one thing if, if you could just get rid of it what would it be
1: taking your time is the answer
0: taking your time i like that you're talking about taking yeah, your time taking to make time. a shot
1: taking your time to make a shot isn't the answer I- Again, I kind of go back to that dichotomy, but the way most instructors teach that is it is perfectly acceptable to get on the sights and get on the trigger and spend five or six seconds or even 10 seconds to shoot a two-inch dot at three yards. And it doesn't need to be that way. As soon as I see what I need to see, I press the trigger. And the gun cycles, the sights come right back to where they left from, and I press the trigger again. And that typically happens in about three or four tenths um, but that that's that's what I would take away is take your time.
0: excellent, man. We've been going a little long here um, and that's okay. I try to I usually try to keep these to about an hour, but I knew going into this I was like, man, you know now I don't rehearse a topic. I just give a topic because I don't want sterile and rehearsed answers i want the most raw right give me what's in the forefront of your mind right now about this or that yeah with that being said man i, I really appreciate it let's take a quick second and I'll, I'll tag all this stuff in the uh show notes where can people find you keepers
1: Keepersconcealment.com.
0: Keepersconcealment.com. now i know your training company is still named awareness events correct
1: correct and it 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 is all linked in that, that one website. So you can find out about our holsters. You can find out about me, my training company classes. I've got scheduled, uh, which I don't have the 2021 schedule up yet, but, um, you can contact me for private lessons there. Um, you know, of course, CCW safe, you know, that all, you know, all that stuff is right there on that website.
0: Keepersconcealment.com the, the latest, greatest holster, the cornerstone holster. Love it, dude!
1: Going, going, gangbusters! That's awesome,
0: gangbusters! I got to find a title for this episode. I think I'm going to call it "Appendix." No, today we slay the sacred cow. There we go. All right. Thanks again to our guest Spencer Keepers from Keepers Concealment. We're going to make him our honorary sponsor today keepers home of the keeper holster the keeper light the errand holster and the new cornerstone holster which is grown to be one of my favorites if you haven't already please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes Google Play Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts the off duty on duty podcast is a Production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions. Follow all firearm safety rules. Consult with a competent firearms instructor and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content. Commentary. Commentary or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.